Ready? Ready? <clears throat> well, welcome to, I think this is lesson number 10, to the finale of what we have been studying in Romans 1 through 8. As I believe the Lord has given direction just to give, as we have done, an overview of these eight chapters. And today we conclude with Paul's finale in chapter 8, as you're turning to chapter 8. And hopefully this kind of presentation, you know, condensed as it has been, and it's been a challenge, believe me, to condense some of this, because some of these verses could be taught for weeks at a time, let alone chapters, and we would not exhaust the verse. But hopefully what this is accomplished by the Spirit is to give us, when we look at Romans, <clears throat> especially the first eight chapters, because 9, 10, and 11 explain the sovereignty of God, which is a question precipitated by chapter 8, and then 12 to 16 explain the outworking, the fruit, what the first eight chapters are to look like. So that's basically how Romans would be constructed. Hopefully, as we look at this and as we think about these eight chapters and the rest of Romans, we think about it within the larger context of the entire Bible. And I'll say one more time before I get into this chapter, because I cannot get away from it. And quite frankly, I won't get away from it. In order to understand and know and therefore apply the Bible the way God desires it to be applied, for his purpose. We must, may I repeat that word? We what? Must. Understand that everything flows from the root of Genesis 1 through 3 and proceeds over the thousands of years of biblical revelation history and comes to the full blossom or the consummation or the fullness of revelation and reality in Revelation 21, 22. So here are the bookends of the Bible, if you would. Chapters 1 and 2, especially 1 and 2, and then 3, of course, gives to the fall, but especially 1 and 2 of Genesis, and then Revelation 21 and 22. And as you read your Bible, as you study, keep in mind Specifically, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where God's purpose in creation has been to make us in His image. And that image is manifested and carried forth and is demonstrated in the mandates that you see in chapter 1, verse 28, specifically. God's blessing, His presence, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, ruling over and subduing. And so we must make sure that anything we read in the Bible is read within the context of those two chapters, specifically those verses 26, 7, and 8, those three verses. 
And then verse 2, 15, chapter 2, verse 15 of, of chapter 2, which brings in our priestly function. All of that is fulfilled in Revelation 21, 22. And between the bookends, once the fall has occurred, God desiring to have created a kingdom on earth of kings and priests unto his name for his glory and for his praise, then begins to be reworked and God beginning to move toward that completion. And we see it failing and maybe success and failing and maybe success in these cyclical movements of application of the mandate and then a little movement forward and then failure. And we see this cyclical movement through the entire Old Testament. And then finally one day a king is born. A king is born. The king. In this king there will be no failure. And this king wins the day that Adam lost. I'm not going to get through this today, am I? (laughs) This king, the greatest spiritual battle of all time, which replicates the temptation in the Garden of Eden, the greatest spiritual battle of all time occurs where? In the Garden of Gethsemane, not at the cross, not at the cross. The cross is not that kind of a battle. The battle of whether a man will obey God, whether a man will obey God is in the Gethsemane. And once this man says, no matter what and at whatever cost, I will obey, then in obedience, he goes to the cross, suffers everything of our disobedience, in his obedience, dies and is buried, and with his burial, our disobedience, as a result of his obedience, is put to death. And in his resurrection, the vindication of his obedience is then given to us when God declares us in his sight as his obedient people in Christ. Amen? Then the fulfillment and the consummation of that in Revelation. Paul has been talking about that, that great work of God, and the means and the message of that work is the gospel to bring about the reality of what Jesus accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection, the exaltation, the crowning King of kings, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so today, Paul has been moving forward from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8, and here we come to the summit, and we're looking over the grand horizon of God's work. As Moses stood on Mount Ebo, and God says, look at the promised land. And we begin to see here a looking at the promised land. So let's begin. Chapter 8, Paul begins to emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in God's restoration plan for man to fulfill his original intention. 
Now, before chapter 8, you know, the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned four times. And, and not when I say incidentally, I don't mean unintentionally or not significantly, but incidentally in relation to the Spirit's role in what has been going on. Paul has withheld that revelation until we get to chapter 8. And so the Spirit has certainly been emphasized, I'm sorry, mentioned in uh, the first eight, seven chapters four times. But when we come to chapter 8, the Spirit now in this one chapter is mentioned 20 times. Suddenly, everything changes as far as the revelation of the role of the Spirit. Not the role of the Spirit, but the revelation or the understanding or the explanation of the role of the Spirit. Because the Spirit has always been involved in all of this. But then when we come to chapter 8, Paul now for the first time, for the purpose of God, wants to show something about the Spirit's work in this great recreational activity of God which has begun after Genesis 3, 6. Remember, restoring man unto himself as he explains the purpose of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the revelation of God's righteousness. It is for our salvation. For what purpose? To bring us into the consummation of God's purpose, as we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22. So why this emphasis? Paul wants us to know and to understand that the Spirit of God is God's divine agent in bringing about a new creation as has been promised and demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. So let's make sure that we see the Holy Spirit as God's divine agent. God the Father willing it all, speaking it through His Word. Who is the Word? Jesus is the Word. You remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. God the Father desiring and purposing it, speaking it through His Word. And as the Word is spoken, then the Holy Spirit is the agent that puts it together, if you would. Okay? So let's talk about the role of the Spirit in the new creation. I remember, after Genesis 3, 6, the original creation fell corrupt, polluted, and had to be put away and was immediately and forever rejected by God. Nothing in the old and or the original creation is acceptable to God. Amen? Nothing in the original or the old creation is acceptable to God. Nothing. Everything must be made new. And so when we say new, we're talking about new in relation to God, in relation to this creation, new creation, brand new. God is bringing about the similitude of the old, except it will be new without sin, without corruption, and it will be totally within the context of God's will where his glory will shine forever. So as the Spirit was present, you remember the Spirit was present at the first creation. You remember that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says what? And the earth was without... Thank you. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered, vibrated over the waters. Remember that? The Spirit was active in the original creation. In the same way that the Spirit was active in the original creation, the Spirit continues to be active in bringing about God's new or recreational activity. 
And so throughout the Old Testament, and, and I don't have it, it's not in your notes, but the Spirit of God is mentioned over and over 14 times, the Spirit of God, 15 times, my Spirit, 23 times, the Spirit of the Lord, 29 times, the Spirit, 12 times, my Spirit, 6 times, His Spirit, 3 times, your Spirit. So the Spirit of God is active throughout the Old Testament in bringing about, in applying, in making a reality God's purpose in recreation. Not only was the Spirit ubiquitous, you know what ubiquitous means? It means what? Everywhere. Ubiquitous just means He's all over the place. Not only was He ubiquitous, He was also God's prophesied agent in bringing about the new creational activity. He is prophesied as the one who will be applying God's will as it's spoken by God, God's Word, and taking the will of God spoken through His Word and applying that. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is look at a couple of prophecies in Isaiah and then go to Ezekiel and then go to Acts 8. I'm I'm sorry, Romans 8. Uh, This is going to be a very different way of handling Romans 8. Typically, we go right into it and handle the issues in Romans 8. But I want us to see something larger today in Romans 8 than just the particulars in the verses. Therefore, we'll do it this way. We won't satisfy everyone in this. But again, my burden I feel from the Holy Spirit is not just to deal with the issues of all the verses, but to get our hearts and our minds up larger to see the grand activity of God in Romans 8. So then when you study and when you look at Romans 8, you can see it from a perspective of the top of the mountain rather than maybe in some other perspective. So that's what I think the Lord wants us to do. So let's look at a couple of examples from uh, Isaiah as that describe the Spirit's role in bringing about God's new creational purpose, that the earth would once again be God's garden of Eden in which he and his people will enjoy fellowship forever. So let's look at these prophecies. You might want to be turning to them. I think you see them listed in your Bible, uh, in your notes there. The first one's going to be Isaiah 44. I think we have them reversed in your notes, whatever. And we're looking at this God's original garden of Eden, the place where he and man would dwell forever, that was to be taking over the entire earth through Adam's obedience to the mandate. That was God's purpose, that the entire earth would come under, if you would, or be covered with the Garden of Eden kind of a relationship and existence. It didn't happen. So God through this is prophesying, my spirit one day is going to accomplish my purpose so that the earth will once again become my garden place. Okay? So Isaiah 44, 3 through 4. Listen to what it says. For I, meaning God himself, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit. So when he's talking about pouring water, yes, there may be literal water, but water what? As exemplifying the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing (coughs) upon your descendants, and they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Now, again, you see the descendants, the word seed there. Remember the seed, the blessing. Of, 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 and then in that you see Genesis 1.28, you see some of the mandate uh, uh, verbiage there. Then let's go to Isaiah 32, 14 to 18. Let's look at the effect 
in one of these prophecies of the Spirit being poured out. What will that look like when the Spirit is poured out as prophesied in Isaiah 44? What is it going to look like? What kind of a creation, what kind of a garden will that look like? And again, what are we looking at? We're looking at God uh, recovering His original Garden of Eden purpose. So when we look at this, we must remember where we've come from and where we're going and what God's purpose is. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys uh, a pasture of flocks until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. You see, again, a garden. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice, remember justice, remember God's justice in justifying us and condemning Jesus, but justifying us will dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness, remember righteousness, who God is, the purpose of the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Romans 1 17 and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace God himself Christ himself is our peace remember that he is the prince of peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever Jesus is coming to me all you who labor and are heavy laden remember in, in um, um, Matthew eleven twenty eight, and I will give you what rest remember the seventh day of rest living in the finished completed rest good of God's work quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This is the result of what's going to happen when the Spirit is poured out and when the Spirit accomplishes the will of God spoken by the Word of God. So let's look at Ezekiel 36 as the way the Spirit would do this. And we've seen this because, remember, we went through a series of preachings on this. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, and then verse 35. So 25 to 27, and then verse 35. This describes how the Spirit will bring about this new creation. How is He going to do this? Specifically, what is the Spirit going to do? What does it mean when I will pour out my Spirit? What does it mean? God's a gardener, and He walks around with a can of Holy Spirit like water, and He pours it everywhere, and there will some things get blossomed. What does it look like? What are the specifics of this pouring out? How would the Holy Spirit function as God's recreational agent upon the earth? How does He do it? Verse 25, Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> I will sprinkle clean water. Do you see water? Water. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the rivers, the water was flowing out of Eden. You remember some of those analogies, that picture. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. What does John, 1 John say? If we confess our sin, he is what God is faithful to do what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will be clean. You see? We will be clean. Clean you from all uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. That's new creation. That's a recreation activity. New heart, a recreation. When you see these kinds of terminologies in your Bible, make sure you remember this is recreating us in the image of God's Son 
not according to the likeness of Adam anymore, but making us in accordance to the likeness of God's Son. You remember that. Recreational activity, a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. Again, a new creational activity. And I will remove the old heart of stone. What? The old creation. I've condemned it. I will make it new. I mean, I will condemn it in you. It's been condemned in you at the cross from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Remember in Romans 6, 4, walk in newness of life. You remember that. And in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And they will say, this land, this land, what land? My body, your body, this body of Christ, the church. This land that used to be desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. You see in verse 35, I am. I've skipped down to 35. It's becoming like the Garden of Eden. God is recreating us in His original intention. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. So as the Spirit was at work in the first creation, He's also at work in the new creation. Now let's go over to Ezekiel 37. And, and Ezekiel 36, the Holy Spirit says, uh, God says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use the Holy Spirit to pour out my spirit. Remember in chapter 44 of uh, Isaiah, it's going to look like this. And then Ezekiel 36, this is what I'm going to do. Let's look at an example or the example. Now, when we read this, I want you to keep in mind, when you read this or when I read it to you, keep in mind John 3.3. 3. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is what? Born again. And so from 3.3 to 3.8, Jesus explains being born again by the Spirit. When you, then he says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and then you don't know this stuff? We believe that Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 36, these verses that I read, and to the example in the first ten verses, and then the example, uh, the explanation of it in the next four verses of Ezekiel 37. This is what Nicodemus should have understood. This is what Jesus was referring to in John 3, 3. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, upon Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit, the ruach, the Ruach of God, the word Ruach, R-U-A-C-H, is the Hebrew word meaning spirit, breath, or wind. Okay, so it's interchangeably used. Always it's either breath, spirit, or wind. Into the Ruach of the Lord, the spirit, the Ruach of the Lord. And set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. In other words, the valley of mankind is dead in sin and trespasses. Remember, where did you hear that? You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Where have you heard that before? First one of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Remember? This is, a, you know, this is that. We're dead before Christ. And, the, and he said to me, Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-title, Son of Man. He called himself Son of Man more than any other title. Can these bones live? And, you know, Ezekiel is smart. He says, Oh, Lord, you know. He says, I don't know. Only you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, you see, look, say the word of God. The gospel goes forth. The revelation of God goes forth through the gospel. Say, speaking the word of God. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, ruach, the spirit, 
to enter you, and you shall live. Remember, being born again, the Holy Spirit shall enter you. Ezekiel 36, I will put my ruach in you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put my breath in you, that ruach, that spirit of God. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling of the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath, ruach in them. Then he said (coughs) to me, to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus saith the lord god come from the four winds remember jesus said the wind will blow where it will but you don't know remember that remember that he says the wind is going to be blowing around in that john 3 passage that is that he is explaining to uh, nicodemus he sh- nicodemus should have remembered this oh breath and breath on these, oh, breathe and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath, the ruach, the spirit came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then in the second part of this, these next verses, 11 to 14, I won't read it all, but here's what he said will be the result. In verse four, 12, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. 14, I will put my spirit and you in you and you shall live. I will bring you out of the graves. You shall have new resurrection, life, and power. See, this is the activity of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us and bringing us from death to life and causing us to no longer be in the old creation but bringing us forth into the new creation. This is God's great work. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 3, 3. You see, none of this activity, look at the valley of the dry bones. Remember in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. Look at the valley of the dry bones. Is there even one bone that is crying out to the Lord to save? Do you see one bone saying, save me, save me, save me, save me? No. Dead bones cannot cry out to God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I read that somewhere. I know somebody said it in some place. Somebody help me where it is. Romans what? 10 what? 17 or 13? Which one? Okay. Somebody said 13. Someone said 17. So we'll deal with that later. Is there any bone out there that is saying save me? When did these bones come to life? when the Holy Spirit breathed onto them through the preaching of the gospel. Then they came to life. You see, John 1, 13, isn't it? But as to many as them who received, 12, 11 and 12, receive. They are receiving the breath of God. And they are then cooperating with the breathing of God in them as God is giving them life, and that's how we were born again, right? That's how we were born again. That's why we don't think too much of the thought that you first have to call upon the name of the Lord for him to come to save you. That's not what happens in here. That's not what Ephesians 1 through, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through uh, 9 tell us. That's not what it tells us. So let's look at Romans 8 
and look at just overview of the Spirit's recreational activity that Paul describes in Romans 8. And I've read these, these prophecies to you to show once again that what Paul is talking about here is the culmination, the revelation, the coming into our existence, the making real what God had prophesied from the very beginning, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, is now being made real at the time of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of Acts. And it continues that way until the Lord returns. And then we get Revelation 21 and 22. So in chapter 8 of, of um, what, where are we? Romans, okay. In chapter 8 of Romans, newly created sons by the Spirit. The first 17 verses, we are newly created sons and daughters by the Spirit. In these verses, these verses describe the effect of the Spirit's re- new creational work in us as a result of our being justified by faith as a result of God justifying us or declaring us not guilty. How did we get declared not guilty? How did we get declared not guilty? When Jesus died, where were we? Galatians 2.20, where were we? We were in Him, and God saw His death, His punishment for sin, taking on the penalty of sin, as our sin, so that in his punishment our sins were punished and condemned and put to death and buried forever. Amen? How did that happen? Why did it happen? When did it happen? In Christ, in God's mind before the foundation of the world, being made real in a time context at the cross. You remember this? Okay, that's what happened. So 1 to 17 describe this new creational work of bringing us into uh, to sonship and by the Spirit. So let's read verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can there be? How much of our condemnation did Christ bear at the cross? How much? How much? All of it. Let it soak in. How much? And for how long? For how long? I can't hear you. Forever. All of it forever. You see, you just hear Paul hitting the trumpet now. I'm telling you, let me tell you what the Spirit is doing here. In Christ, when His death and in His resurrection, Here's what God has done. He has taken away our condemnation forever. Why? So that we could become the sons and daughters of God forever. Amen? You see, the barrier has been removed forever. Do you believe that? Yes. For the law of the Spirit, you know, that principle of the life of the Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, from the from the decay, from the curse, from the burden of having to try to obey in order to be accepted, which never did work. 
for God, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. You see, we didn't have the ability and the law didn't give us ability. We could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in Christ. And when he condemned sin in the flesh in Christ, where were we? We were in Christ. In order that the righteous requirements, remember the righteousness of God as proclaimed in the gospel. Righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, the first effect of our immediate is our immediate. What the first effect of the recreational work of the spirit is our immediate. Complete. May I repeat that word is our what? What word did I say first? Immediate. What does that mean? I am not being brought into forgiveness. May I repeat that for you? You didn't hear me. I know you didn't. Because someone would have screamed. Because some in the room still feel that you're being brought into forgiveness by the things you're trying to do. Come on. Am I pretending here? No, I'm not. God, by the Spirit, has caused an immediate. How fast? Faster than that. (laughs) Complete. How much? Complete. And forever separation from condemnation, allowing us to be able to walk in newness of life by the Spirit. That's what he's emphasizing in those verses. Why can I walk as a righteous man? Because I am a righteous man in Christ, and I can now walk righteously in Christ because I have the spirit of righteousness living in me. And you remember chapter 6, no longer does sin and the body of flesh and Satan have authority over me. Is that true for you? The only reason I sin, the only reason I fail to obey, the only reason I give in to temptation, there is one reason other than ignorance, but I'm talking about purposeful sin, is my fault because I wanted to sin. Please stop saying when you sin, oh, Father, I didn't want to do that. (laughs) I didn't want to punch my sister in the eye. I didn't want to... Steal that. Well, certainly you did. Let's stop the silliness and say, Father, I wanted to sin. And I'm asking you to deal with that failure in me. Right? Let's stop playing around with God. I wanted to sin. I hope this helps some of you who've been saying, I didn't want to sin. I didn't want to sin. I know the spirit, but the flesh in you did. So let's face that and make sure that we come to God and allow him to do a work in us so the flesh is, not, is, is uh, not dominating us anymore, but the spirit is. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Remember, he says the same thing in Galatians. And to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Remember, in Galatians chapter 5, he deals with some of these things. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile. Hostile, if you're from New Orleans. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As God's new created people, you remember? New created people, John chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 36, John chapter, Ezekiel 37. We can now please God. How? By consciously, purposefully, decisionally setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh. How do I do that? I decide to do it. Church, how do we do it? How do you do it? How does your child do her homework or his homework? How does that happen? That child must make a decision to do the homework. Are you with me on this? I decide to do it. I don't wait for some move of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, ooh, do it. And then I feel, what? To do it. There are believers who are still waiting to, to feel inspired to obey to stop sinning, to read the Word, to pray more. You don't need that anymore. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Now we must make the decision to do God's will, knowing God's will, correct? Are you with me on this? Let's take away all the props and the silliness and make sure we can do all of these things. And if we can't do even one of them, the Holy Spirit is not in us. If there's even one thing that God says we can do and we can't do it, then the Holy Spirit is not in us. Can you say amen? Do, do we see that? Let's let the devil and sin and temptation of flesh melt away with all of these excuses and begin to see, wait a minute, I, by God's grace in the Holy Spirit, I now, in Christ, by the Spirit, cooperating with Him, I can now do it. I can do it. It doesn't say that it's going to be perfect, but you can, and so can I do it. 9 to 13, you, however, are not in the flesh. You see, Paul says, you ain't in the flesh no more. You're newly created. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Mm. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. How do you know you're saved? You know you're saved not necessarily because you ask Jesus to save you, but because you have the Holy Spirit in you. That is the quintessential proof and revelation that a person is saved. Does that uh, person have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him or her? And how do you know the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you? You are keeping the will of God. You are producing the fruit of righteousness because a person imbued by the Holy Spirit keeps the Word of God, produces righteous fruit. No unsaved person can produce in any way righteous fruit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, remember the, the authority of sin in the body no more has that. The spirit of life because of, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Remember John 10.10? 10? Remember John 10.10? 10? All of you remember what he said. So then, brothers, you are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's been put away, the old creation. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. You see, if you're living in the old creation, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because you're putting to death the deeds of the body? No, because you're proving that you have life by putting to death the deeds of the body. You don't get life by putting to death the deeds of the body. 
you get life by a gift of the Holy Spirit to you, and that is proven by putting to death the deeds of the body. Do we see that? This is not a works righteousness. This is a fruit issue. We can now live lives of righteousness because the Spirit dwells in us. Right? We can now do that. 14 to 17. Oh, this, well, I'm not going to say it. <clears throat> For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If I just said the Saints won the Super Bowl, you know how much hooting and hollering to be in here? Come on. How many hooting and hollering be in here? And I want the Saints to win. That people think, oh, he doesn't like the saints. No. So what does that verse just say? What does verse 14 just say? Hmm? What does it say? For all who are led by the Spirit are what? Sons of God. Sons of God. Anybody out there? Does this do anything for anybody in here? What did 1 John 3, 1 say? Look at the love that God has poured, lavished upon us, that we should be called His sons. And so we are. I mean, this slays this man. Sons of God. We were sons of Adam, of disobedience. But now what? Sons of God. There can be no, there's just nothing that, startling there's no no contrast like that anywhere if in fact the spirit of god well let me hear it for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father you see we know we're sons of god because god now is our father The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are now God's adopted sons and daughters by the Spirit. Adoption. Adam was God's first created son who failed, but we are now God's newly created sons, created in the image of his son, and we're not going to fail. How can we say that? Because we're in him who did not nor ever will fail. We now inherit all the riches of our father's house and we cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. Abba being the transliteration of the Aramaic, Paul is telling the Jewish people, this is the cry of your heart. You would say Abba because you speak Arabic, whatever they call it, and Pater, which is the Greek father, he says to the, Jew, uh, the uh, Greek people, this is what you would call God. The point is this, God is our father. God is our father. We used to be of our father who? Satan, remember John, remember John 8, 44? Your father, the devil. The effect of the spirit's role in creation, 18 to 22. What is the effect? Can you hold on? Can we get through this okay? Let's go a little over. Anybody give me five minutes? How many give me five minutes? Anybody raise your hands if you give me five minutes. I have three days to go. For I consider, I need to hear this every day. I need to hear this every day. I need to hear this every day. For I consider that the sufferings of this present dead, dying, condemned, old creation 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Who? The adopted sons of God by the Spirit. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, to corruption, not willingly, but because of Him, because of God, Christ, who subjected it in hope. Aren't you glad God didn't say this thing is going to continue forever in its corruption and sin? That the creation itself would be one day set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to be set free, and so is the creation, and it's all going to happen at the same time. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth now. So what is the effect now that the new creation is alive in the midst of the old. Where is the new creation in the midst of the old? Where is it? Look around the room. We are the new creation in the midst of the old. In the midst of the old, the old is yearning for the coming of the new creation as a woman yearns for the birth of her child through sufferings. It's tough. It's painful. But the joy of birth the joy of consummation, the joy of fulfillment causes her to say, I am not going to allow these sufferings to overcome me. I'm going to walk through them in anticipation and hope, knowing that a great day is coming, the birth of my child. Correct? The old creation is anxiously waiting its liberty from corruption at the revealing of the sons of God. When is that happening? When the king returns. That's when it's happening. No wonder the word says there will be a shout from heaven. A shout. And the old creation will be totally redone, renovated, totally put away, and a brand new creation will come. You can read about it again. In Revelation 21 and 22. Then what God intended in Genesis 1 to 2 comes to full fruition as described in Revelation 21 to 22. You see what Paul is doing in Romans 8. I want to paint a big picture here. Paul says this is the description in this chapter of the reality that is seen in Revelation 21. And 22. Typically, we don't connect these things, but we should. Because in Paul's mind, he is connecting Genesis 1 and 2. He's looking forward to Revelation 21 and 22. Although it hadn't been written, Paul knows it. Paul knows about it. He's bringing them both to bear and putting him right, them right here in Romans chapter 8. Verses 23 to 27. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for as we are. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, not only is creation yearning for the end, but we also are yearning by faith, waiting for the consummation of our adoption, that is the redemption of our bodies, to get a new body. We are adopted, but we are fully adopted 
We are today fully children. We just don't fully realize and experience until we get our new bodies. Amen. We're not going to be more children on that day than we are today. We're just going to be more and fully realizing it and experiencing it then than we are today. Do, do we see that? We wait with hope through prayer, anticipating the coming of the Lord. 28 to 30. What, then what is our attitude to be? We're waiting for that. We're adopted children. We're waiting the sufferings. What is our attitude? And we know that God works all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why? For those whom he foreknew, remember, for the foundation world, he predestined to be conformed to the image, image of his son. Where did we get that word image? Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, God's ultimate purpose in our adoption is conformity to the image of his son. Our participation in the sufferings of this dying age is explained. What is God doing? Bringing about the living reality, bearing upon our flesh the old creational effects that still remain in us in this fleshly body are being worked out of us. And inside, we are growing stronger and stronger by the Spirit. Do we see that? We're growing up on the inside, although this outer man is decaying. Somebody else said something about an outer man decaying. But inside, we're growing stronger. <clears throat> the victory of the new creation by the Spirit. What then shall we say? Paul says this, look, we're going to look at the old creation. We're going to look at these old bodies. Don't be frightened when you look at the mirror. I have to remember this too. Let's not be frightened because what we're seeing is physical evidence of our getting closer to getting a new body. We're seeing physical evidence of our getting closer to the new creation. Physical evidence before us. All of this is passing away. So Paul says, what shall we say to these things? <clears throat> you can I can just imagine Paul marching back and forth as he is dictating this. This little old beaten up Jew, all beaten up and whatever, but straightening up as best he can, setting his jaw. Is that how to say it? And says this, here is my attitude about everything of the old creation. Every suffering, every attack, every temptation, everything of devil, everything of sin, everything of temptation. He, he says this, I'm an adopted son. Here's my attitude. This should be our attitude. Verses 31 to 30. <clears throat> what shall we say to these things? 39, rather. If God is for us. There it is. If what? If God is for us, what of my background can defeat me? What of the way I was raised can defeat me? What of people's attitude can defeat me? What temptation can defeat me? What combination of all Satan and his minions can defeat me? What? None of it. I am the only one who can bring defeat into my life. Amen? Nothing in all creation. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, adopted to have inherited everything that the Son of God inherits. We are co-inheritors with Christ except for his divine nature. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who are we to be accusing one another? And I have to remember this, of wrong and all that. We have to be careful. If God, It is God who has justified, who has wiped the slate clean of all of the guilt of our sin. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There is in the heavens a living man who ever will live in the presence of God for us and uh, on our behalf and in him as long as he remains before the living God, this living man. We are maintained in God's presence forever in this living man. Amen? And he isn't going anywhere who shall separate us from the love of God shall tribulation I shall tri- is tribulation going to suffer uh, separated from God is distress what I can't hear maybe I'm going deaf is tribulation going to uh, separate you from the love of God aren't you glad that difficulty doesn't separate us from the love of God is distress persecution famine Nakedness, danger, sword, no. It is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all of these things we just barely get by. We are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because we are the adopted children of God filled with the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit. We are God's new creational people in Christ. For I am sure, I can just see Paul now, that neither what? Death nor life. No angels, no principalities or rulers. No things coming, present, or things that are going to come. What's happening tomorrow? No powers, no height, no depth, no anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. This is where God is taking us in the new creation. This is what we're supposed to see and carry and respond to life in this context. Amen? Now, come back next week and let's do some questions and answers next week. See you then. Thank you.